Let me invite you to turn in your Bible now to the Gospel of John, chapter 3, and we're going to be starting in verse 14 this morning. And you have probably noticed, if you've been a Christian for any length of time and uh, read much of the Bible, especially if you've read much of the Old Testament, that the Bible has some strange stories in it. Right? And that's not, like, we don't need to feel bad about saying that. That's just true. The Bible has some strange stories in it. But often, it is that very strangeness that shows us that God is at work. Right? So think about the stories in the Bible where the sun stands still. Where city walls fall down after marching and trumpet blasts. Or where a man loses his strength after his hair is cut. That's not how the world normally works. Those stories are strange. But because the world doesn't normally work that way, when God does those strange things, He gets our attention. He says to us, I am here. I am at work. I care about you. I'm fulfilling my promises. I'm, I'm working in the world. It's just like whenever God caught Moses' attention with the burning bush that wasn't consumed. Moses turned aside to see it. This is strange. This doesn't normally happen. What's going on? And when he got Moses' attention, then God began to speak to Moses and tell him what he was going to do and what he wanted Moses to do. Now, one of those strange stories that the Bible tells us is the story of the bronze serpent. And that story, strange as it is, is the story that Jesus uses to tell Nicodemus what is going to happen to Jesus and what he's going to do. And so let's look at John 3, starting in verse 14. You're going to see Jesus' reference to this story in verse 14. We're going to read down to verse 21. And then we'll go back and read in a few moments the story from Numbers 21 about the bronze serpent. And talk about how that strange story helps us understand what Jesus came to do. So John 3, beginning in verse 14. Jesus is still talking to Nicodemus. And he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out 
in God. Now, Jesus, as I said, was talking to Nicodemus, and we saw last time that Jesus was telling Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. You have to be born of the Spirit. You've been born physically. You need to be born spiritually, because without that spiritual birth, that new birth, you can't see the kingdom of God. You can't enter the kingdom of God. You're not going to know who Jesus really is, the King. God's own son, who's brought God's kingdom to to save his people and reign over them for their good. But now Jesus begins to tell Nicodemus, not what must happen to Nicodemus in order for Nicodemus to be saved, but what must happen to Jesus in order for anyone to be saved. So in verse 14... He begins to explain that to Nicodemus and to us. And strange as it seems, he does that by reminding Nicodemus of the story of the bronze serpent in the wilderness. Now this comes from Numbers 21. It's just a few verses. It's a short story. I'm going to read it to you so it's in our minds and we understand what Jesus is referring to. Because Nicodemus would have known this story. When Jesus said... As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Nicodemus said, I know that story. Uh, you might know that story if you've heard it recently, but it probably doesn't come to our minds as quickly as it would have come to Nicodemus's mind. So let's, let's hear this story real quick. It's very simple, very straightforward, and it's not very long. Here's what it says. It says, The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take, that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole... And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. It's a strange story, but a pretty straightforward story. Israel was sinning against God. They were in the wilderness and they were grumbling against God because they didn't have all the stuff that they wanted. And even what God provided, they didn't really like that manna stuff that they said was loathsome and worthless. They were grumbling against God, and so God's judgment came against them for their sin. God sent fiery serpents to bite them as a judgment for their sin, their grumbling, their complaining against God. And when that judgment came on them, they realized they had sinned and that they needed God to deliver them. So they came to Moses. We've sinned. Ask God to get rid of these serpents. Ask God to deliver us. And so Moses prayed, and here's what God did. God said, okay, Moses, make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, so it's high up, right, where everybody can see it. And if somebody gets bit by that serpent, if they will, by one of the real serpents, if they'll look at the bronze serpent, they'll be healed. They'll live. That's not how things normally work, right? That's not, that's not... Yeah, that's not medicine, right? That's a miracle. That's God intervening, right? And Jesus uses that story to tell Nicodemus about what is going to happen to Jesus. 
So he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, like he said, he put that serpent on that pole so that the Israelites who were under God's judgment could look at it and be delivered from that judgment, be rescued, be saved. So must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus is talking about himself. So must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus, Jesus is saying, I'm going to be put up on a pole like that serpent. I'm going to be lifted up for all people to see. I'm going to be raised up, not on a pole, but on a cross, so that anybody who looks to me and believes in me, just like they looked at that serpent, if they look to me and believe in me, they'll be saved, not just delivered from a snake bite, but that they will have eternal life, eternal fellowship with God. That's why I came, Nicodemus. That's what's going to happen to me. That's how God is going to deliver, how God is going to save. See, the story of the bronze serpent, strange as it is, had a purpose behind it beyond what happened to Israel in that moment. Right? In the Old Testament, so many of the things that God did and that God said were not just to help Israel in the moment, but also to prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah, for the coming of Jesus. God's telling to Moses, put a serpent up on a pole so people will look at it and be healed. When he told Moses to do that, he knew what his son was going to do. He knew what Jesus was going to experience, and he was telling Israel even then, this is how I'm going to rescue you. For real. Not just from the, a snake bite, but for eternal life. So that Jesus could have this conversation with Nicodemus and say, even before it happens, something like this. I mean, this is this is this is big paraphrase of what Jesus is essentially telling Nicodemus. When I get put on the cross, Nicodemus, it's gonna seem strange and you're not gonna understand it. But I'm telling you ahead of time, here's how you understand what's happening to me on that cross. Think back to the story of the bronze serpent. Think how God rescued his people in that strange, unexpected way. All they had to do was look at that serpent and live. In the same way, when I lifted up on the cross, all you have to look, all you have to do is look at me and believe. And you'll be saved. You'll have eternal life. Now there's one word in that verse, a small word, that's easy to overlook that we need to pause over for a moment. Did you notice in verse 14 the word must? So must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Must? Must Jesus be lifted up? Must Jesus die? Apparently, but in what sense must Jesus die? God was under no obligation to save us. Jesus did not have to die for us. He did not have to leave heaven and take on flesh like we sang about earlier in the service. He did not have to leave heaven and take on flesh to save us. He could have left us just like we were. salvation is a gift it is grace we don't deserve it we couldn't earn it God didn't owe it to us 
In that sense, he did not have to do it. But, if he's going to come down, and if he's going to save us, what he's saying is, there's only one way I can do that. In order for those to believe, in order for those who believe to have eternal life, Nicodemus, there's something that must happen. I have to be lifted up. There's no other way. If you're going to be saved, I'm going to have to die. If you're going to receive eternal life, I'm going to have to be suspended on a cross and become a curse so that you might have life. That's what's going to have to happen. Now, perhaps that seemed strange to Nicodemus when Jesus told him that. I'm sure it seemed strange even to Jesus' disciples when it happened to Jesus. Even though he told them it was going to happen, it's not what they wanted to happen. In some sense, it still wasn't what they expected to happen. And it's not what many of the people in the world were looking for when they were looking for a Savior. Well, Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Strange as the story of the bronze serpent is, in one sense, The crucifixion of Jesus is even stranger by the world's reckoning. Paul says, Gentiles look at that and they think, foolishness. Jews look at that and they stumble over it. They can't stomach a crucified Messiah. But among the Jews and the Gentiles, those whom God calls to himself and opens their eyes, we see something different when we look at the cross. Not something strange, but something beautiful, something powerful, something wise. And not only that, but the clearest demonstration of love the world has ever seen. That's what Jesus says next in verse 16 continues to explain to Nicodemus what's going to happen. He says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. In other words, this is how God loved the world. God loved the world by giving His own Son. And giving His Son so that we would be delivered from perishing. We'd be delivered from hell, which is what our sins deserve. And we would instead receive eternal life. We know that God loved us not because somehow we got a sense that God had some kind of, you know, warm fuzzy toward us or something. It's way more than that. God's love is demonstrated. John's word in 1 John 4 earlier was manifested. It was revealed. It appeared. It was put on display. God showed us once and for all that He loves us 
by giving His own Son. And the cost of that love shows the quality of that love. Right? Here's how Paul puts it in Romans 8.32. He says, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? In other words, there's nothing in the universe you can imagine that's more costly for God to give than His own Son. And since He's already given His own Son, what could you possibly ask for that God would say, no, that's too costly? Nothing. He might, you might ask for something and Him say, that's not good for you. But He's never going to say, that's too expensive. You're not worth that. I'll only go so far, but I'm, I'm not giving you that. He has already gone as far as it's possible to go in the demonstration of His love for us by giving us His own Son. And notice why He gave Him. Verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. When you think about Jesus dying on the cross, there's a certain sense in which you can't help but think about your own sin. Because you know that's why He's there. He's dying for me. He's suffering for me. But when you think about Jesus suffering for your sin on the cross, you are not meant to feel because of that guilt and shame and condemnation. You're not meant to look at the cross and think, this is all to remind me how terrible I am. How much God is mad at me. How much God is against me. You're going to feel guilt and conviction and shame, right? Because you sinned, and that's necessary and important. But the message of the cross is not mainly you're guilty. The message of the cross is believe and you're forgiven. Even before you believe, you are loved. And the reason God is saying, the reason I sent my son is not to condemn you, but to save you. And there's some people who've forgotten that. There's some people who think, seem to think, that our main message to the world is condemnation. You're all terrible. But that's not why God sent Jesus into the world, and that's not why He sends us into the world. God did not send Jesus to condemn the world. He didn't send you and me to spread a message of condemnation in the world. He sent His Son to save the world, and He puts us in the world to be ministers of reconciliation, to tell the world, if you will look at this Son and believe, God will reconcile you to Himself. He wants you to be restored to Him. Do you know what God had to do in order to condemn you? Nothing. Not a thing. If he wanted you and I to be condemned, 
The Son of God could have just stayed in heaven, left us like we are. End of story. We've got no hope without Him. Already under condemnation. God had to do nothing for us to be condemned. So why did He do something? And not just something, but the most costly something He could do. Why did He give His own Son? Because He loves us. Because He does not want us to be condemned. He wants us to be saved. He wants us to know Him. He wants us to know that we are loved by Him. And He wants us to respond to His love for us with love toward Him. In verse 18, he says, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You don't have to commit what we think of as like a a really big sin in order to be under God's condemnation. If you don't believe in Jesus, you're already under God's condemnation. Simply for not believing. That's the bad news. But the good news is, if you believe in Him, you're not condemned. Now and forever. Already taken care of. That's why Paul says in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Sometimes, the hardest thing for us to believe, as clear as He's made it, sometimes the hardest thing for us to believe is that God actually loves us. Salvation is not a loophole that God forgot to close. Oh, man, another one got in. Salvation is God's design from start to finish. It's the demonstration of His love for us. He wants you to receive it. He wants you to believe it. And once you've received it and believed it, He wants you to own it. To know, I am loved by God. I am a child of God. Though I deserve to be condemned, I've got no condemnation over me now, and I've got no condemnation waiting for me in the future. Done with. Paid for. Jesus took it. Now, with such good news on the table, why doesn't everybody come? Why is everybody not flocking to Jesus? Why didn't you? I mean, maybe, maybe for you. It wasn't the first time you heard the gospel that you came to Jesus. Why, why not? What happens? What's wrong with us that at some level we resist what is the best news, the greatest love that anyone has ever shown? Well, Jesus tells us about that too. Starting in verse 19, he says, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The light that comes into the world, that's Jesus. Later, Jesus is going to say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will no longer walk in darkness, but have the light of life. John said back in chapter 1, he said, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. 
He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. Jesus is the light. He's come into the world. Why isn't everybody flocking to the light? Don't people like the light better than the darkness? No. We don't. Why not? Jesus tells us. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. People do sinful things. Sin prefers darkness to light. People who are still attached to their sin don't want to come into the light. They want to stay in the dark. They like the dark where they can hide. And that's not just like, that's not us versus them. That's everybody until you come to Jesus. Verse 20 says, everyone who does does wicked things, which the Bible says is all of us, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. That's the reason. People hear about Jesus, they see the light, and they say, I don't want to get close to that, because if I do, it will expose me. It will show up all the darkness I've been hiding, all the wicked I've been trying to keep in these dark corners and closed closets. He's going to turn, he's going to shine his light on all that, and it's going to be visible, and I don't want that. So I'm staying away from the light. But he says, verse 21, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In other words, those who do come to the light, they do what is true, what is right. And when the light shines on them, it's not so people will look at them and go, wow, they're great people. But so that people will look at them and go, wow, look what God has done in them. Look how God has changed them. It's the same thing Jesus says in Matthew 5.16 when he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Because they'll see that the works that you've done are not coming from you. Maybe because they knew you before you came to the light. Right? They've come from God. So the good news that Jesus told Nicodemus earlier helps us understand this bad news Jesus is telling us here at the end of this passage. Because you might be wondering, okay, well, if if the people who love the darkness don't come to the light, and the people who the, the people who do love the light, like, is that are those static categories? Like, are you in one or the other permanently, and you can't go from one to the other? Or what is this? What is this about? Right? Remember, Jesus told Nicodemus, "You got to be born again. You need the Spirit to make you new." He told Paul, "Go preach the gospel and open people's eyes." God's going to be the one opening the eyes, but as Paul preaches, people's eyes are going to be opened. They're going to be turned from darkness to light. In the same way, when you're born again, you not only get a new heart, a new spirit, you get new eyes, as it were. You can see Jesus, and you want to be in the light. Here's the thing. If you're, if you're not a Christian, and you're still in the darkness, and this is resonating with you, and you're like, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to tell all these people, oh, I don't want them to know that I'm a sinner, I don't want them to know the things that I've done. The Bible gets that. And we get that. Especially if you think about how the world 
Treats people when their darkness gets exposed. Man, people just pounce on you. Try to destroy you. People act like they don't have any darkness, any evil deeds to hide. It's baffling to me. right? But that's how the world treats people when they're exposed. And no wonder nobody wants to be honest. And nobody wants to come to the light. Nobody wants to, nobody wants to experience that kind of exposure. But here's what happens when you're exposed by the light of Jesus in the presence of others who have come to the light of Jesus. We all go, me too. Me too. I got exposed too. But you know what? It was the best thing that could have happened to me. It was the best thing that could have happened to me. Because you don't want to live in the darkness. And it's a little painful making that transition to the light, but it is so worth it. And when Jesus' light exposes your darkness, remember that it's not an exposure for condemnation. It's an exposure for salvation. He exposes that stuff in your life, not to heap shame and condemnation on you, but to say, let me take that. You need to get that off your shoulders. You need to get that off your back. You've been carrying a burden that I died to pay for. Let me take it. Let me cleanse this. Let me bring you into the light and out of the dark. Let me give you joy and peace and eternal life. Because that's what I came for. And nobody made me do it. God the Father loved you and wanted to save you. And I said, I'll do it. I'll go. I'll lay down my life. I'll pay their debts. I'll take their sins. I'll drink the dregs of your wrath against sin to the end. And I'll rise. So that they might know not only forgiveness, but also the promise of eternal life in our presence forever. And then when they believe, we'll send the Spirit to dwell in them. To fill them, to empower them. So that they'll begin to look more and more like us. With lives full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. That the love that we have shown them, they'll begin to show the world so that more and more people will be drawn to us. That's the plan. That's why Jesus came. That's what he wants us to believe. And believing, that's what he wants us to rejoice in. Let's pray.